friendship. It's something that I think a lot of us take for granted. A lot of us grow up just naturally meeting friends at school, during sports, after school activities, through college. But then you get out of college, right? You get older, friends move away, you move away, careers start, and suddenly making friends isn't as easy as it used to be. And sometimes it can be really hard to build deep friendships with people because, well, it's a lot of work. This has been a topic that I've been curious about. Am I just struggling with this or do others feel this way too? The more I started talking about it, the more I realized that other people also said, making friends can be really hard when you get older. So we reached out to Kat Fellows, who recently wrote a book called We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Friendships. We talk with Kat about her experience writing this book and how many of us aren't alone in feeling this way. Kat has some amazing stories and also some really practical advice for what you can do to jumpstart your search for deeper friendships. Real, true, deep friendships versus these high-level or artificial friendships that seem to be the norm in this world of social media, influencers, and just the hustle and bustle of everyday life. We can't wait to dive into this topic with Kat and hope that some of this resonates with you, our listener, as well. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. Thanks for joining us for our conversation with Kat Bellows. Hi, my name is Kat Bellows. I'm the author of a book called We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships. And in my work, I help adults form healthy, meaningful, fulfilling friendships. And I also help work teams create healthy, fulfilling work teams as well. Kat, so if you've listened to the show, you know we start each episode with this lightning round thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so we've got 11 questions just for you. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. Okay, here we go. City or country? Mm, city. Museum or movie? Museum. Bus or subway? Bus. Driver or navigator? Driver. Water or wine? Water. Table for eight or banquet for a hundred? Table for eight. <laughs> Hug or a handshake? Hug. Tight or loose? Loose. Stand out or fit in? Mm, depends. Provocation or harmony? Harmony. And finally, truth or beauty? Both. Nice. Thank you. So, Kat, you wrote this book called We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships. What was the impetus for this book? It's kind of a short and a long answer. I'll try to split the difference and give you the medium. So at the time I started researching and writing this book, I didn't even know that I was going to be writing a book. I'll put it that way. At the time, I was working as a user experience designer for another large company here in the Bay Area. And I was spending all my days doing UX research and UX design. And for those who aren't familiar with that career, it's basically the process of making things more user-friendly, particularly an app or a website or a piece of software. And these are skills I love using. I love being with people in this way. I love using design skills in this way. And concurrently, at the same time in my personal life, I had recently moved to the Bay Area and I was going out and meeting a lot of people. And like many adults do when they move to a new city, trying to make new friends. And I was meeting a lot of people 
which is not the same thing as making friends. You meet a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that you are tight with them, you're close with them, you know who to reach out to, et cetera. And so a lot of the people that I was meeting also said that they were having trouble making friends in adulthood. And I thought that was quite odd because, you know, all of us had reasonable social skills, like we were all pretty friendly, like what was going on? Why was it hard to make friends? And so I just started doing something I do naturally when I'm in a situation and trying to solve it, which is I got people together and I started hosting gatherings and discussion groups and events and conversation experiments where we would have deeper conversation and talk about connection. And ultimately, in the course of essentially doing a bunch of qualitative research in my free time, because it wasn't quite enough for me to do qualitative research at my job, I discovered that this was a problem that many, many, many adults were having. And I got more and more curious and intrigued about it. And then about 10,000 words into writing on my laptop, a friend says, it sounds like you're writing a book. And I was like, huh, yeah, I guess I guess I am writing a book. And luckily by that point, I already had a quarter of it done. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of the short and the long answer of how I got into this topic and why I chose to make it in the form of a book. Kat, what toll does loneliness take on us? And conversely, how does friendship support our well-being? Right. So one of the things that I discovered when I dug more into this topic around connection and the flip side, of course, which is loneliness, is that it's an interesting thing because it's a signal from our body that something is missing. Just like when we're hungry, we get a signal from our body that food is missing, you know, if we're thirsty, that, you know, hydration is missing. And loneliness is just a signal that connection is missing. But unfortunately, just like if you go without food or water for too long, If you go without connection for too long, it also takes a toll on your body. One of the things that we see is that people who experience chronic loneliness, they have higher rates of inflammation in the body, higher rates of anxiety and depression, higher chances of getting heart disease and dementia. And they also live shorter lives, typically with more health problems than people who live lives full of connection. And so that's part of the reason why our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, has called loneliness a public health crisis because it absolutely is. Has loneliness gotten worse in recent decades? I know it's something that's been reported since like the 80s. We've been talking about loneliness being a, kind of an epidemic of some sort. But how has it changed in the past couple decades? Yeah, you're right. So in 1983, the New York Times health editor, Jane E. Brody, was the first person who called loneliness a national epidemic in our in the United States. And when you look back at the article, it's interesting because she refers to our, quote, highly technological society as one of the contributing factors. And that was in 1983, like long before the version of the internet we have today and social media. And so in many ways, our world has more ways of staying connected but it also has more opportunities to feel disconnected. And so, you know, in terms of how we know, like are people more or less lonely than they were in the past? That was a harder question for me to answer. And I looked all the way back to the rise of cities in the United States from back in the 1930s to now. And I don't think that there's a very definitive answer around, are we more or less lonely, for example, before the rise of cities? Because there's also great evidence of loneliness that occurs when people live in very isolated and very rural settings. And of course, now with more cities being the places where people tend to congregate and live, there's also lots of loneliness in cities. And it's a a special flavor of loneliness because when you're surrounded by people and it should be possible to connect with lots and lots of people around you, loneliness, I think, feels even more painful because you're like, 
this doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm around a lot of people. So that question I think is quite hard to answer. And what I encourage people to do rather than get worried about like the entire thing is to look at your own life and assess what amount of connection feels right for you and are you actually getting your needs met? Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I think one of the things when I was reading your book is you talk about, you know, living in the San Francisco Bay Area and how hard it was to meet friends. And I felt that when I moved to San Francisco and I felt like it was a different kind of quality of friend or a different type of friend. And I think you kind of nailed it. I think that there are certain types of environments where people are really ambitious and care about their job and care about focusing on success more so than they are about maybe family or friendship. Would you agree that some cities are kind of more prone to that than others? Absolutely. And thanks for sharing your your experience, a very validating experience of that as well. One thing for folks who haven't lived in the Bay Area, one of the unique attributes about it is that it's a very transient place. Like a lot of people move in and then move out rather quickly. One of the things I found is that for many of the people I interviewed, they said they had moved here less than two years prior and they were planning to leave in less than two years. And so what that would create is the situation of like feeling new and also going to a lot of goodbye parties. Like there was one year where I think I went to more goodbye parties than birthday parties. And it got to be just so depleting when like I would make a friend and get really excited and be like, it's my friend. And then like within six months, nine months, 12 months, they would leave. That is definitely a thing that happens here in the Bay Area a lot. And one of the very, very most interesting things I found when researching this topic and working on the book was some work by Dr. Richard Florida as well. He wrote a book called Who's Your City? And it's all about cities and regions and not just the kind of predictions about what will happen economically and developmentally in those cities, but also there's a whole section in there about the personality of cities. And him and a whole bunch of data scientists and psychologists got together to figure out the personality of different cities and regions in the U.S. And it is absolutely true that places like the Bay Area and New York, for example, have higher rates of people who are open to new experiences and ambition and inventiveness, but we have lower rates or lower concentrations of people who value things like duty and social capital and community ties and those sorts of attributes that are actually really good for friendship and community. And unfortunately, we have lower rates of that than certain other parts of the country, like maybe the Midwest. And I've heard this anecdotally from some of the people I interviewed for the book who are from the Midwest and say, yeah, there's a lot of agreeableness. And when people say, let's hang out this weekend, they mean it and they really show up. But when you try to do something new or outside the box, they're like, why would you do that? everything's great the way it is. And so that book, Who's Your City, is a great one for anyone who's interested in the topic of city personalities and choosing an environment that is really going to be a good fit for what you're looking for in your life. Yeah, I think maybe that's part of the key there is like really thinking about the environment you're getting into because my lived experience in the Bay Area is completely different from yours. I moved here in 1990. I moved around a little bit for the first few years I was here, but then I sort of settled in and Pretty quickly, I ended up getting married and then having kids. And we settled into you know a community that was based more around the school districts. And we've maintained a bunch of friendships for a very long time because people move here for their schools and then the kids stay in the schools for extended periods of time. What you describe is certainly what I would expect in San Francisco proper. And I think that's a, a unique problem of the city itself. But of course, when you think about the Bay Area, San Francisco itself is actually a fairly small part of the larger Bay Area. And there's certainly communities in Silicon Valley that are more transient than others. I think if you went up to the North Bay, it would feel pretty different. 
So I wonder if it's a little bit more granular of thinking about how you're investing in a, in a more local community. And, and maybe this gets me to the heart of the question, which is, you know, when you talk about loneliness, it's I'm hoping you can define that for us a little bit and distinguish that from being alone. And maybe talk also a little bit about the experience of the pandemic, where it was sort of a novel experience that we were trying to make connections with people who were geographically dispersed. And I feel like in your book, there's sort of this tension of, you know, does friendship have to be geographically close or is there a way to have distributed relationships and still feel close to people? So one of the things that you mentioned, you know, was about the difference between being alone and feeling lonely, because they're not the same thing. Being alone is simply the state of being literally on your own. There's nobody around you. You have some solitude. You have some alone time, some me time. And that in and of itself is a neutral state. You might love it. You might hate it. You know, you might be like so relieved that you have this time to yourself, time to think, time to work on your own projects, time to not be bothered with other people's expectations or demands. That can be a joyful state. And as an introvert, I can personally say I'm often quite happy being on my own. However, loneliness is different. And the way I typically define this when I'm running workshops is that it's a difference between getting the amount and type of connection that you want. It's when there's a gap between getting the amount and the type of connection that you want. And it's a very personal thing. So, you know, if the two of us have different appetites for the amount of connection that we want or the type of connection that we want, we will experience loneliness at different rates. We will experience it at different intensities. And so it's really important to check in with yourself and not compare yourself to other people on social media or people that look happy and successful and popular (laughs) and say like, well, what is actually your appetite for connection? And what is the type of connection you're really wanting? And then how can we get that need met? The second thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned had to do with proximity. Certainly in the pandemic, we saw how being forced to be apart from the people that we love, being forced to keep not just social distance, but physical distance, geographical distance, it can be a very painful thing. And it makes us realize just how much we value having the opportunity to be together, having the opportunity to be in physical proximity, to share a hug, to share touch, to share like closeness and space. And that is something I hope that is a lesson we will hold onto from the pandemic and carry it forward with real intention and purpose. Because the thing is, proximity alone cannot create a best friendship. You know, there are plenty of people who might have had the experience in their life of say, like having a neighbor that gets under their skin and they like really wish they didn't live close to that person. And just the fact that they are close to you, like proximally does not mean you are automatically going to love each other. However, there is also the proximity principle, which states that if you are around people frequently enough and you have enough positive chemistry, you will like each other more even if it's just a stranger that you don't even interact with, like the people who catch the same subway train or bus stop as you, simply by seeing each other as a familiar stranger can make people have more positive feelings towards that other person, that stranger. And so proximity matters. It's not the only thing that matters. And in the book, I talk about multiple other factors to consider. But if you have enough intention and purpose, you can maintain a very strong, healthy friendship with someone at a great distance. And I'm sure Everyone here who has ever made, say, a friend in school or a friend in college, and you live in different states, but you've stayed friends for 20 years, you know what I'm talking about. I wanted to touch on the proximity thing because one of the statistics that you talked about hit home and it was really uncomfortable, which was 30% of the U.S. population has never interacted with one of their neighbors. 
And I go back again to living in San Francisco and I go to where I live now and it's such a different environment, right? I mean, I lived literally sharing walls with people I'd never met. And here, you know, I live a half a mile away, but I know my neighbors so much closer. I think you answered part of the question as to proximity doesn't always guarantee friendship, but this almost seems like it's normalized. And how do we unnormalize that? How do we shake that on its head a little bit? It's funny. I think back as well, Meredith, to the many times I've shared a wall, like an apartment wall with people and been like, who are they over there? Like, why are they so like quiet? Why do they keep to themselves so much? It's funny because when I was doing the research into, I mentioned looking back all the way to the 30s to the rise of cities, and there was a really wonderful research study done by basically the father of modern day sociology, Lewis Worth. And he was trying to define what the state of sociology was really in cities. And even the way he would describe the anonymity, the like kind of fractionalized society and and the absence of closeness in cities then, it sounded like he was describing life in a big city today. There's a quote I include in the book that I really love from him. And he says, frequent close contact coupled with great social distance accentuates the reserve of unattached individuals toward one another. And unless it's compensated for by other opportunities for response, it will give rise to loneliness. One of the biggest mistakes I think people in cities make, particularly with neighbors, is assuming that people don't want to talk to you. Obviously, people need a little bit of private space, especially if they're decompressing after long, busy, harried days in the city. However, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to be open to you. And so taking the chance to knock on a neighbor's door and be like, hey, I made extra muffins or cupcakes or like, hey, I just want to introduce myself and let you know if you ever need anything, here's my number. We really underestimate how much other people would love to hear that and how it would really not be a bother to offer that to others. That's so powerful to be able to have neighbors you can count on. And I think that for those of us that have that, we kind of take it for granted. But when you don't have it, you can be left hanging. I wonder if you could unpack for us, what are the elements of a healthy relationship, healthy friendship? So in the book, I have a section about the things that help foster healthy friendships. And I call them the seeds of connection. And there's four. They're compatibility frequency, proximity, and commitment. And what I describe there as I go into unpacking each of those in the book is to say, if you have all four, you're going to have the highest likelihood of success and happiness in that friendship. And you don't have to have all four at 100%. And depending on which set of them you have, you don't even have to have all four. So we talked about proximity earlier. Many people know that you can maintain a friendship at great distance from somebody else who lives across the country or even in another country. So if you have frequency, you have compatibility, you have commitment, you can make up for that. On the flip side, you can have proximity, but if you don't have (laughs) compatibility, so if you have a lot of proximity and frequency, but you're not compatible, you're actually just going to be really annoyed. So it really matters which ones that you have there. And most importantly, I think is commitment as well. And the way that we make our commitment shown to each other, the way that we either through our love languages or our words or our actions, like really, really demonstrate how much we value each other and are committed to that friendship. One of the places where we see that is in how we show up for each other, not just when things are going great, but when we struggle or when we have a disagreement with a friend and we say like, I'm not giving up on this friendship, even though I'm really 
like frustrated with you right now, which is one of the things that unfortunately we see a lot, especially I feel like it happens more and more frequently in our modern age. It's like people at the first sign of, of trouble or the first sign of disagreement, they ghost, they just bail. And that unfortunately is obviously a lack of commitment, a lack of dedication, and unfortunately the death of many friendships. Although it's not the number one reason why friendships end, most friendships end typically through fading away rather than through a full like blowout fight. But unfortunately that lack of commitment and dedication is what often leads friendships to fizzle out. Kat, that does seem a little generationally different to me. Would you attribute that to maybe like a conflict aversion or a misunderstanding of expectations? Or is there something else do you think is generationally or or socially or culturally different that accounts for that change? I definitely think there are generational things as well, particularly younger folks, obviously more likely to ghosting than people from like, I'm Gen X. And so it's still strange to me that people like think ghosting is a super acceptable habit, as opposed to just saying how you feel. (laughs) So yeah, I do think there are some generational things there. And many of the people that come to my programs are from a younger generation as well. Typically, I would say the range of folks who gravitate to my work and that I've worked with either in workshops or coaching capacity is like 25 to 55. So yeah, I do see some differences there. But I think socially, we also watch the way our society changes over time. And many of these habits can like spread across different decades of ages as well. Kat, I want to push on this a little bit further because there are times where we probably should pull the plug on relationships. And you touch on that in the book, you know, if you don't have enough time to invest. But there's sometimes, like I can think of a number of examples through my life where there was just like a disproportionate investment or kind of friend doesn't reciprocate the contributions to the friendship. And it might be time to pull the plug. How do you know when it is time to pull the plug? And how do you do that gracefully? Yeah, lack of reciprocation is one of the biggest struggles that people mention when they come to me for either, like I said, the programs I'm doing, or I run an advice column in my newsletter as well frequently. And the lack of reciprocation is unfortunately one of the biggest frustrations. Typically, what I offer there for reflection, this is a very personal decision. You have to kind of decide what works for you. But first, to reflect on A, what does this person's life look like right now? how much space and capacity do they have to reciprocate? So for example, I often use the example for my own life, which is that I chose not to have kids and almost all of my friends chose to have kids. And so the amount of energy and space and time that they have to give to friendship is less than what I have. I've taught myself how not to take it personal if they don't have as much time or attention for friendship as I do. So the reciprocation is, it cannot be a one-to-one. So uh, A, think about that. B, have you had a conversation with this friend about reciprocation and about what would help you feel really valued and cared for in some kind of equal or not even equal, but like a balanced way in that relationship? A lot of times people want to pull the plug on a friendship and they haven't even given the friend a chance to talk about this problem with them. So you got to know, like, is your friend someone who's likely to meet you in a conversation like this? Hopefully they care about your feelings and they care about their friendship and are open to hearing something like this from you as opposed to just losing the friendship, which I'm sure might be really upsetting for them as well. So have a conversation with them about that. Lastly, if you feel like it's time to turn your attention away from the friendship, something I I recommend doing, and I recently wrote about this in my newsletter, is to say, you can turn your attention from a friendship without burning it up, like without like lighting the bridge on fire. And I use a lot of nature metaphors in my newsletter and in my writing, I do around relationships. And 
what we often see in nature, but we don't often apply to our relationships is the understanding that things come in seasons and we don't expect a flower to bloom year round. And some flowers don't even bloom at the season that we think flowers are supposed to bloom. And so if something has gone dormant, that is okay. Even in nature, we rest a field and it's healthy for the field to take rest and not be productive every day of the year. And it is possible to simply turn your attention towards what else is blooming in your life and let that field lay fallow until a time perhaps when that friend can rise to the occasion and meet you in a more reciprocal way. And you don't have to have a whole big meltdown about it. You can just say, I'm grateful for what I got to share with this friend in the days when it felt more matched. And I'm going to turn my attention to people that can match me now. And my heart is still open to connecting with this person when they feel ready and able to. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah. And you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. Kat, I, I want to go back to this question of whether or not to have kids a little bit, because I find this one really fascinating. I have kids. Aaron has kids as well. Meredith does not. And when I talk to a lot of my colleagues that are in their late 20s up to their mid 30s, it feels like they're trying to make a decision about whether to have kids or not. And of course, with medical science now, we have more choice in that than ever before. To me, you know, I'm older than most of the folks on the call, you know, like having kids wasn't a big debate for my wife and I, it was sort of a given, but it feels like people are actually trying to sort out that question. And it does feel like it puts you in sort of a different social trajectory. And I would love to hear you and Meredith talk about your experience there a little bit, because I'm not sure society's all that well set up for People who choose not to have kids. I'm not sure society is that accommodating to their full set of human needs. Let me jump in because I want to see if your perception is similar <laughs> to mine, which is 
Bob, I think you're right. But I also think that there are, again, I think it goes back to location. There are some areas of the world where I think having kids later or not having kids is way more socially acceptable. And I think the Bay Area is one of those places where I definitely have felt less pressure to have kids because there is so much going on and there are so many people that don't have kids, right? I mean, the percentage of kids in San Francisco proper is super tiny. So Kat, what do you think about that one? I think location's a big kind of determining factor for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this area and San Francisco too, as you mentioned, is a place where there is very little pressure to have kids and a whole lot of pressure to work on your career. I mean, even in San Francisco, they've had to close some schools because there aren't enough kids to go to right. them. And typically when people have kids in San Francisco, they move away. They move to a place that's more affordable. They move to a place that has a school district that they want. They move to a place that has easier amenities. And as was mentioned, you know, a place where their kids can go to school for a long time and grow up alongside other kids and families. Like that's a common thing that we see here is kind of this like flight (laughs) of parents and new parents. And I've also experienced it personally. A lot of my friends moved away when they wanted to have kids. Either they moved back to where they grew up or moved to just another city that's more affordable or something like that. Yeah. I also think to add to this, Bob, you talk about friendships and kind of how they evolve. And for me, of course, just like anything, Kat, what you were saying, you know, like in different seasons and stuff like that, of course your relationships are going to evolve. And when one of your friends has a kid, of course it's going to kind of change. But I think the one thing that I've noticed is, yeah, you know, I don't get to spend as much time with them, but I do feel like the time I spend with my friends who have kids now is definitely quality time. And they kind of enjoy being around the person who doesn't talk about kids all the time. Like they like, <laughs> like they like going out to lunch and being like, I don't want to talk about my kid. And it's funny because I'm like, I'm not anti-kids. It's not like I don't like children, right? It's just I personally have chosen not to have them. And so it's kind of funny. People are like, oh, do you want to go on the girls trip with me? Or, oh, can we go do this like without the kids? So You know, in some ways, Bob, it's kind of like, yeah, maybe the amount of time has changed, but I don't think the quality of my relationships have changed. I see people as kind of like I'm their outlet. Mm -hmm, I don't know if you experienced that, Kat. I do. My friends know that I'm I'm a safe place to not talk about like potty training or Mm -hmm. sleep schedules. (laughs) (laughs) Because like I have nothing to offer the conversation. (laughs) And it's like, let's talk about all the other things. And, you know, I had interviewed some women for the book who were newer moms and were saying, you know, one in particular, I remember this sitting in her living room, having this conversation about how she had had a kid. And so she joined this new mommy group at the hospital or something. And she was trying to make friends there because she was going to this group on a weekly basis and they were all having babies the same age. And she was like, but I don't have anything in common with these women. She's like, the only thing we have in common is that we had a baby around the same time, but I would never choose to be friends with these people. She's like, but I need to be friends with them because this is the community I need right now. You know, on both sides, there's this choice around like, who do you spend time with and why? And sometimes, you know, we have to acknowledge it's it's to get a specific need for support met, you know, in that case, she needed support as a new mom. And when we, you know, we're talking, it's like, we don't have to talk about that. It's funny, it goes back to your point about ambition, you know, and I, I had a question about, and I think you kind of addressed it already about, is there a, a, an inherent conflict between ambition and connection? And it feels like there's this hyper intensity on modern parenting 
that drives people away from taking care of their own human adult needs. And so it's interesting that the two of you play that outlet for certain people in your life, you know, that you give them a chance just to be human beings and be themselves in their adult realities without a reference point to their role as parents. Yeah. And one thing I'm very pleased to see is that I do believe it is becoming more acceptable in our society for people to not only be child-free, but to be proudly child-free. I see this much more than I did 10 or 15 years ago when it was like not a thing. <laughs> our, our society is so heavily like prioritizing relationships and parenthood that to intentionally opt out of that was almost taboo or like you couldn't say it because it would be like, wait, what? And there was actually this organization I had found on, I think it was like Tumblr or WordPress, like back in like early blogging days, there was a group that these two women started called Onely, which is for people who intentionally choose either to be single and or child-free. And they did a lot of education around the fact that our society is extremely couple-centric and there are more benefits, frankly, for people that are coupled and parents and in families than people who are single or child-free. And thankfully, I think there's some balance coming in now. There's a lot of very funny social media accounts of people that are like living their best child-free life. And I'm glad that that's there because all of these are valid life choices and anyone who wants to make whichever one feels right for them should feel supported and to know that there is a community of support for them too. So I want to turn this to kind of a different angle because we've been talking about obviously friendships and relationships and stuff like that. But I think the one thing that is really interesting is kind of defining what the difference is between the levels of friendships and the amount of effort that you need to put in. And you call this out really clearly in the book. And so I'm wondering if you could talk to us about the difference between an acquaintance, a friend, and a close friend and what those investments look like. Mm -hmm. This is a question that I love answering because I don't believe the English language has exact words that answer this question, which is why we have to keep talking about it. You know, we don't have 20 words for snow. We don't have 20 words for love. We also don't have 20 words for friend. And we use the word friend to mean many, many different types of relationship. And acquaintance is thankfully a different word <laughs> that captures some of the difference in meaning that that relationship holds for you. And I asked of the many, many people that I did qualitative interviews with, and I also ran a survey online where I asked people to describe in detail about their friendships and relationships, their platonic relationships, I should say, and how satisfied or unsatisfied they were and what those relationships looked like. One of the questions I asked people to do was to give a definition of acquaintance, a friend, and a close friend. And I opened the book with some of their words because I think it you have to take it in aggregate to really get a sense of like what it fully means. So for example, some of the answers people gave to what an acquaintance is, you know, this is somebody that you have basic details about, you have small talk with, you've maybe met them a few times, but you wouldn't go out with them one-on-one. They might be kind of limited or superficial, and there's not a lot of deep emotional connection. And there's nothing wrong with having acquaintances. They're an important kind of friend in life. They're an important type of relationship. And when we are missing them, you know, like in the pandemic, when we didn't have acquaintances, we just like stayed home and talked to like eight people. There was a gap in our sense of community. So acquaintances are important as well, but but they're not as deep. And then when asked to define what a friend is, folks said things like somebody that I feel safe and happy with, someone that I want to hang out more with, and I don't have to try very hard to have conversation with them. It might be somebody that you understand each other's life circumstances, how you got to be who you are, how you got to become, you know, the person you are in this life. 
somebody that you would be happy and glad if they reached out to you. And if you're throwing a party, they are definitely on the list. But it's different than a close friend. And when asked to describe a close friend or a best friend, people say things like somebody who accepts you completely for who you are, somebody that you would hop on a plane to go help at a moment's notice, somebody that you can tell your problems to without being ashamed, somebody that you can discuss the intimate details of your life with, or if one or both of you is going through a rough patch, you know the other person is going to be there with you until the end. You care about each other's well-being. You feel confident you can depend on each other. You share your secrets and your fears with each other, and you'll tell each other what you need to hear, even if you don't like it. And then lastly, someone who's really integrated into your life. And those definitely capture the spirit and essence of what I believe a close or a best friend is, someone who's really intimate and platonic way. Before the pandemic, I didn't have anyone like that in my life outside of my wife. So my wife has occupied that role, but it's healthy to have somebody else, you know, another person to be connected with. And it was just being together. It was that proximity factor that you described that made that possible for me. And now I have a a really, really close friend who's, you know, the moment we see each other, we have deep conversations about all the things. And it's great and it's powerful. And what's interesting is when I now talk to acquaintances, people that are in my community who I've known for 20 years, but I really... Like, I don't know them that well. I struggle to get past the chit-chat. I crave deep conversation, like deeper connection with people. How do you guide people? What advice do you have for people to get past the chit-chat into something deeper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, two of the projects that I've worked on are about getting past small talk. So this is near and dear to my heart (laughs) as an introvert as well, who has uh, limited social energy. And so I wanted to be as nutritious as possible. Getting past the small talk is one of the biggest challenges that I describe in the book around where people have, like you're describing, you have people that you know, but it's hard to get past the surface with them. And so there's kind of two ways to go about it. So one is to speak directly to it and invite the other person to collaboratively work with you on getting past that, right? And so one way that I've done this and that I can suggest people do, depending on your level of of courage, is to simply put it out there and say, hey, Bob, like one of my goals this year is to form deeper friendships and connections. And one of the things I realize is that I feel closer to people when I have deeper conversations. And so one of the things I'm trying this year is to avoid the typical small talk questions. And I'm practicing getting better at asking like really juicy questions. Is this something that you would like to try with me? And when you make it an invitation, A, the person knows where you're coming from. They know that this hope is coming from inside of you and not a critique of them. And they have the opportunity to opt in or out of that. They can say, wow, that sounds really cool. I would love to do that with you. Or they can be like, huh, sounds interesting. I love small talk questions though. And I want to talk about them. And then you know where they stand. And I've had people tell me like either or both of those things. And so that's one way you can do it. The other way is if you're like a more adventurous you know, trickster type of person, you can just like spring it on people. Not in like a mean way, but for example, sometimes people will ask me a small talk question, like, let's say I'm at a block party and someone says, so what do you do? Or like, oh, where are you from? (laughs) One of the like go-to standard small talk questions. And I'll just flip it on its head and be like, can I ask you a different question? 
and they'll say, oh, okay, what is it? And because I collect questions and I've created a, a card deck series called Better Than Small Talk and a calendar called the Better Conversations Calendar, hundreds and hundreds of questions in there that you can use. I have some go-tos that I really, really like. And so I'll just ask them one of those questions instead. Most of the time, people are very curious when you say you want to ask a different question because the first thing they perk up and they want to know, well, what is the question? What do you want to ask me? And when someone is asked a fresh question that sparks the imagination or invites storytelling, people really lean into that conversation. I have almost never seen this go wrong. And I've run many gatherings that are around using these questions to connect. And I had people say that they had deeper conversations than they have with people who are their best friends or their partners in their life. And they're like, how could I have possibly had closer conversations with strangers tonight? And it's like, well, because you had the courage to ask each other new questions and you don't have to do it all by yourself. Feel free to use all the tools I create as like cheat sheets and keep them in your back pocket and use these things because it almost always works. And if it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not going to work the next time. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. That's fine. Try again with the next person or the next day. But I have just an email box like full of really great stories of people saying that they tried it and it worked really well. And it's just so validating to feel alive in a conversation rather than just sleepwalking through it with the same answer you've given 500 times before to that question. Can you share a couple of those questions that you get good results with? Yeah. So one that I really love is what were three songs that you loved as a teenager and why? There's a lot, usually a lot of storytelling and people will tell you a lot about themselves in that way. A question I also really love that's a little bit deeper is tell me about a time you took a risk and it worked out well. Another one that you can try that's kind of lighter, often a good like icebreaker for the start of your Zoom meetings and whatnot is like, how would you rank the snacks in your pantry? Or tell me about a good meal that you had this year, like a meal you keep thinking about because <laughs> you loved it so much. Things that invite people to reflect, to share a memory, to share a little bit of personal storytelling. And people often reveal their values in conversations like that, or they tell you about the things that mattered to them, particularly when we look back on the experiences we've had in the past, like a risk you took that worked out well, or a lesson you learned, you know, from something not going well, you know, things like that, that invite reflection and some sense of integration of a lesson will, will really reveal a lot about a person so much more than simply finding out like where they went to college or, you know, where they were born or something, which may have meaning to them. And it may be completely irrelevant to their sense of identity. So those are some of my favorites. Erin, you mentioning this right now just kind of sparked something in my brain. Kat, I don't know if you read this article. It was a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times about why it's harder for men to make friends than it is for females. I'm curious, during your research, did you see that pop up as well? So I did not specifically define my research along the gender spectrum, I was simply talking to people of all genders about their experiences. That said, I have read a lot into the research around this for the folks who choose to define research along the gender binary. I say with caveat that like, there are not just two genders (laughs) and we must acknowledge that even when we try to learn from research that has been done from that lens. And that is how I typically open this conversation. That said, for folks who have done research, particularly with people who identify as men, there are very common similarities to 
what was mentioned earlier of like, you know, my wife is my best friend. <laughs> like my wife is like my primary social instigator. And that is common for many men. And another thing that tends to be mentioned a lot is that men tend to do shoulder to shoulder activities and women tend to do face to face activities like talking, whereas men typically want to do an activity side by side or stand shoulder to shoulder and look at a thing together as opposed to looking like a lot of deep eye contact, which is what a lot of women tend to do in conversations. Again, these are like generalities and I put big asterisks and caveats around that. If there are guys here who are listening who want deeper exploration to this, I recommend Billy Baker's book. I think it's called We Should Hang Out. And it's about his experience as a guy trying to build closer, deeper guy friendships. And in my work, I don't specify a lot of my colleagues who write on friendship are specifically speaking to an audience of women. They're like, I write for female friendships or I'm a female friendship coach. And I do not specify my work along any gender lines. And many of the people in my community are non-binary. Many of the people in my reader and audience community are all different genders. And so for that reason, I don't exclude or limit my work across any particular gender line. And I'm a member of the queer community and this like reflects the way I live in the world and how I build community as well. So there's that. So Kat, we tend to close these interviews with a question that we ask every guest that we have. So let me set that up for you a little bit. I want you to bring forth into your imagination, your memory a little bit, what you were like as a 25-year-old. And I want you to see if you can really bring 25-year-old Kat into your memory. And I want you to imagine sitting down and having coffee with that version of Kat. And I want you to tell us what that Kat would say to this version of Kat. I'm curious to engage a little bit of reverse mentoring. What did that cat know that maybe this cat has kind of forgotten or lost touch with? This is a tough one because the thing is, 25-year-old me was very much adapting to the extroverted world and the extroverted expectations of society and still living out the training of like, be a good girl. (laughs) People please everybody all the time. And so in a way, I've done a lot of unlearning since I was 25. And so the advice that I was following then is not the advice I follow now. And so maybe if I had to pick, I would say 25-year-old me would probably tell me today to get off devices more (laughs) because 25-year-old me knows the joy of living without a cell phone and without high-speed internet (laughs) and had a much more handmade life. And so she would probably say like, spend more time making and turning off the screens because I already know how good life can be without them. Where can people go to find more about your work? My website, We Should Get Together, has information about my book. I have a blog there. My newsletter sign up is there, which I send every two weeks on Tuesdays with friendship advice and just different invitations to gatherings and groups for people that are seeking connection. And I will say for anyone who's thinking of joining us or who wants more friendship in life, highly recommend hopping on the newsletter and coming to our gatherings because you're 100% going to meet other people who value friendship and connection and are excited to meet you. And then if you want to work with me, like I said, I do workshops for teams that want to have closer connection, whether they're distributed or in person. I also do speaking engagements and facilitated gatherings. So if you want to connect with me that way, my website for that is catvelos.com and my booking form is there. I'd love to connect with you 
throughout the year. Those are the two best ways to reach me. As we've seen in the last couple of months, social media can be a very volatile and unpredictable place where you never know if what's going to happen to it. Are we going to keep using it? For that reason, I'm not sharing my Twitter at the moment, although it still is there. I'm on Instagram at catvelos underscore author, but we never know what's going to happen with Instagram. So really my newsletter and my blog are the best ways to keep up with me and to reach out if there's anything I can do to support you. Thank you so much, Kat. What a treat to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Wow, I'm really glad that we had this conversation on friendships. Aaron, what were your initial takeaways? I think it's a really important topic, and I think for a long time, for me personally, wasn't uh, kind of forefront of my mind of how important a friendship is because I, I think, you know, for me, like once I got married, I had a built-in friend all the time. You know, my wife is my best buddy, but during the pandemic, developing a really deep friendship which was easy to come by when I was in college or I was in high school. You know, I'd have deep friendships. It was easy to kind of let your guard down and this is who I am. And then in adulthood, you kind of pair off and then, I don't know, friendships are hard to come by. And you don't realize what you're missing until you get it back. And I realized that during the pandemic where I had a very close friend who I was just having like very deep conversations with. And I liked what she had to say, like the structure of proximity compatibility. You know, there's the four different dimensions. There are different elements to lead to a quality friendship. And I really like how she advised us on getting out of the small talk because I got to tell you, the small talk is just tedious. It just gets tedious. I want to meet people and I want to have, like, even if we're not going to be lifelong friends, I don't know. I'd like to just know who you are as a human. What makes you tick? What are you excited about? What are you passionate about? And let's have a deeper conversation. Well, obviously, a central and important topic. You know, I think I'm an outlier on this one because I actually felt more connected during the pandemic than I perhaps have ever been in my life. So the proximity thing was a little bit different for me. And I, I think maybe it's because I just traffic more in ideas. And so being able to connect with people and share ideas from around the world was like incredibly gratifying for me. And, and not having the physical proximity wasn't as much of an issue. You know, she didn't get into it, but I, I think sometimes our expectations of how many friends we would have gets a little confused, you know, because that expectation gets set in high school or college where we seem to be surrounded by people. And I was just fortunate when I was in college, one of my professors, a guy named David Nancaro, who taught stage lighting, he was just this incredible figure. He kind of looked like Santa Claus and had a British accent and stuff. He was, you know, for being a, a kid in, in Austin, Texas, having grown up in Dallas, Dr. Nancaro, who had worked on Broadway, was a completely different kind of figure in my life. And I remember at one point he said, you know, you kids in college, you think it's always going to be like this. You're going to be surrounded by people just like you, and you're going to have all these friends, and you're going to be in the same place in life. It's like, that's not really what it's going to be like, you know. Actually, having friends is very difficult and very rare, and you'll spend an entire lifetime. And if you're really, really, really lucky, you'll have enough friends to carry you out of the church at the end. And I think that just sort of reset my thinking about it. And so over the course of my nearly six decades now, I feel fortunate that I've been able to collect half dozen people that I feel that way with, including the two of you. In my case, and this isn't obviously it's a personal thing, but for my case, I think that's helped me battle any feeling of loneliness. Just because I always felt like I had, I don't know, maybe I always felt like I had enough people to carry me out of the church and that seemed pretty good. 
that's very sobering to think about. But I mean, that's true. Like our relationships, like there, I had some really, really close friends in high school whom I thought I would know forever. And, you know, for whatever reason, lost touch. And that kind of goes back to what we learned from Dan Pink. You know, one of those regrets, those chief regrets, those buckets is uh, connection. And yeah, we got to stay connected. But Meredith, how about you? I know, I know friendship and, and relationships, it's a really important topic for you. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that we didn't get to, there was so much I could have talked to her about, but, you know, there were two topics that I wanted to talk about. One was social media and friendships and how that perception, I think, is really skewed these days, right? So I want to have her back on to talk about that. The second one, it kind of goes back to what you guys were talking about with high school and college friendships, is it's almost as if we were all set up in this environment to become friends because there were commonalities. You went to school, you had the same schedule, you lived in the same neighborhood. There were a lot of similarities. And I think as we get older, we change, right? Like you are a way different human being from when you're in a teenager to when in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. And so for me, it's how to know when to let go or when to keep something going. Coming out of this conversation, I think for me, I have a much more thoughtful approach in terms of my intentions of who I want to be friends with and why I want to be friends with them. And just because I've been friends for somebody for 25 years doesn't necessarily mean that that friendship's going to look the same or be as close or as connected as some of my other friendships who are in proximity or who do have similar things going on in their life with me now. And I think that was something that's taken me a while to understand and accept. You know, it's like you don't have to be friends with everyone. You can choose who you are friends with and you can choose what your investment looks like. And if that investment is uneven or isn't reciprocated, then it's okay to let it go. And it's okay to grieve just like you would any other relationship being a romantic relationship, right? There's something about how our baselines do get set in that high school, college, and elementary school experience. And I loved what she said about proximity increases connection, you know, which is something I've noticed. Like when people ride mass transit, I think they relate to strangers differently as opposed to when they're in their car. And proximity is, it doesn't exist when you're in social media. So it's easier to be rude to people on social media. And so in high school and college, it's like a full body experience, man. You're in the classes together. You're walking the same hallways. You're having lunch. You're in the same dorms. You're sharing so much physical space. You end up feeling bonded to the people that you're with. And I remember at one point looking back on some of the folks I went to high school with and arguing with them on social media and I used to refer to them as my high school friends. And I realized, oh, wait, they're not really. Like, who I go to high school with is like who I was on a long bus ride with. Like, we had nothing in common except being at high school. And so I was able to shift how I thought about those people and their role in my life. It's a little bit what she was talking about when I think one of you were relating the story about the woman in the mommy's group. And she had nothing in common with the other women other than to have given birth in the same hospital at the same time. And that's not the basis for a friendship. You know, something that's also interesting, we didn't touch on with Kat, but as people kind of advance in their career and they're more successful and they have more economic stability, they actually, success is to be more isolated. It's to have, you know, a bigger house, a bigger property where you're further away from your neighbors. You have your own car, so you're not taking public transportation and that separates you. You don't go to the movies because you've got like a home theater going to private schools, kind of away from 
people who are from different perspectives. It's like we become more insulated and isolated and less connected. That's extremely dangerous. I think that diminishes our quality of life. I actually loved where she got with the 25-year-old question. The 25-year-old cat already knew what it was that was central to connections because 25-year-old cat was saying, like, get off the social media, go back and hang out with people and make stuff. Like, there's something very wise about that. Yeah. I love this topic. I'd love for us to continue to investigate relationships and friendships as we go forward in future episodes, because I want to have people to carry me out of the church, too. Totally agree. And on that note, I want to thank you both for being my friends. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for being my friend. I think there's a song like that. Mm -hmm. Travel down the road and back again. (laughs) You got a friend in me. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.